Hey fellow tennis nerds, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Nerd Podcast, this time with Antoine Hillereux, a marketing manager from HEAD. We're talking about the HEAD rackets, the different promotions they're doing and the connection with the players and the work of being involved in one of the biggest brands in the tennis industry. So I hope you find this interesting. I really did. I learned a lot from it. Thanks for listening. Have a nice day and stay safe. What's the situation there? I mean, you're, um, are you on the German side or where are you based? Austrian side. I'm just next to the to the company. Uh, the city is Bregenz. Basically, the situation. So the the Austrian government is the first one that has announced a back to normal plan. Let's say uh, this Monday. So oh. the president announced that uh, it should um, start slightly reopening some of the stores and the retailers by mid-May, which leads us with like five weeks still after this one. On the six weeks, so starting in May, they should uh, they should reopen some of the of the retailers. They didn't specify which one yet, but at least they commit that in six weeks it should start going back to a normal path somehow. But as as Denis mentioned to you, Head, for instance, was still very flexible, and I know that in uh, in the Vorarlberg, so the the um, the area we are at um, in Head. The local decisions remain very flexible because it was not strongly affected by the by the virus, but overall Austria is not. Uh, numbers are fairly low here, so we were quite lucky. But I think the the situation was managed uh, pretty well by the government. Now you you must, uh, for instance, you must uh, wear a mask when you go, when you go to the grocery. So mm -hmm. um, as this is an obligation, they give it to you at the entrance for free, or sometimes you you get a small charge if it's a uh, a very small shop, but uh, but they, they really take uh, this this program seriously, so it's uh, it's much appreciated on our side. I think that's great. I think that's the the way to do it from from just looking at uh, how different countries have dealt with it. But um, yeah, here you do a, like a fever test, so you have like a they check you with a like a fever gun or whatever it's called, and mm -hmm. check if you have a fever. And if you have, you you're not allowed in the shop. Um, you you don't have the masks enforced yet, but they do have like, um, you know, antibacterial washes and gel available before you enter the store and after you leave the store. So at least there's some kind of restrictions. Yeah, they, they, they have it too in, um, in Austria next to the table where they distribute the masks. You have the, um, the gel dispenser where you can actually clean your hands. But I think it's, it helps because in the end you are carrying the, 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 the cart, the trolley everywhere in the, in the, in the shop. So you actually touch like some potential germs welcoming areas. It's it's basically good that you can wash your hands afterwards. Yeah, yeah, that's the most important thing as far as I understood. Mm. Um, but how are you coping otherwise? I mean, you're uh, working out at home and um, you're, you're working from home or you're, you're coming into the office like Dennis? Um, I, I stay at home. I take, uh, I take this uh, health situation pretty seriously, actually. So I, I, I stick to the rules. Uh, overall, I think this is this is my tennis mind. You know, I stick uh, I stick in the frame and I don't get out of the frame. But um, no, I I stay at home. The national decision, sorry, in Austria, has been to um, invite uh, most of the of the companies to do uh, to reduce the time of uh, of their uh, of their workload. So this is the decision up to the to the companies. But we we got our number of hours reduced. Uh, however, we keep doing our best. So I, I'm doing home office. I have a reduced number of hours uh, to be done. However, I still work on my on my laptop. I still deal with the emails. 
And right now, as you must um, be aware of, the, the, the trick for us is to kind of evaluate when would potentially the situation go back on, on track for us to be able to, to plan our next actions. And this is currently the difficulty because it, it evolves every day, every hours, or anytime you have an update from the from the government. And we have, we we, we need to rely on them. Uh, all the all the institutions have to rely on these decisions, and this requires us to keep uh, to keep on. Working. Um, so we we keep doing our stuff, our job. However, obviously, it's not uh, we, we are not it's not possible for us to work 100% because some of the of our units have uh, literally stopped their work. In, uh, in UK, for instance, this is a national fuel off uh, situation, so they are even like forbidden to work. So this is this is tricky in some part of the world. I'm also in touch with uh, the North American. Uh, for them, it's uh, it's just the beginning, but they are all uh, also super worried. It, it, the, the stores got closed also there. So yeah, we need to we, we need to be patient with the situation and not uh, not rush our decisions. So we need to wait and see measures and be prepared on our end because when it will uh, when it will come back i think there will be a pretty huge uh, excitement people uh, people can't wait actually to go back and I'm, I'm part of them um because because it's a long time and we are forbidden to do things so when we will be allowed back i think there will be a huge rush um not only on the tennis court but but everywhere basically yeah i think that's uh, that's a good thing for for people's mental health and also for uh, general health and also the economy so I think hopefully we'll see a huge boost of um, people being out and about and spending money and stuff. Let's hope for that. And uh, the economy takes a positive upwards turn after this uh, period. But uh, uh, so how does your daily job at head look like outside the virus situation? What uh, what are you doing on a daily basis and what are your focus and objectives? So um, I'm, I'm part of the marketing team in um, in head. So I'm on the same uh, floor of the building than uh, Denise and the other uh, product managers. Um, I'm part of the international advertising department, which means that we take care of the communication part of the marketing plan. And um, my job as uh, integrated marketing communication manager is to make sure that we deliver the right assets to the person in need. Um, in order to deliver this, uh, these assets, we need to make sure that we understand uh, the product managers and their initial ideas um, about the new launch or the new release of a product. Um, it means that we need to understand the, the, the various features of the product and understand what sort of benefits uh, is the result of these features for the, for the consumers and our customers. And when we have um, all this uh, brief shaped out we forward it to a creative agency who is developing the campaign material with us and then we we send this information to the to the subsidiaries and to the markets uh, we exchange with them and they execute the plan uh, according to our uh, requirements um, and from this we run analysis to get better for the next uh, launches this would be the the short story let's say for what we are what i am doing so overall we need to look at various areas. Um, nowadays, as, as you are aware of, uh, Jonas, we are more and more in a digitalization of our marketing. And this means that we need to focus now a lot on our website, on um, the social media, for instance, on direct marketing, such as newsletters, things like this. 
but um, at head we we decided a couple of years ago to also focus a lot about um, our distribution and especially the pro specialties so the retailers that are actually specialized into selling uh, racket sports products uh, because we don't only cover tennis but all the racket sports in our division and this means that we listen a lot to the feedback of our markets to what's happening actually um, in these uh, brick and mortar shops uh, in order also to to help them developing themselves with this uh, digitalization that is going on everywhere so um, we need to keep a look on everything and we need to keep on um, acting on the trends uh, this is also part of the of the jobs that uh, that we are doing in our team and basically uh, my role is to oversee uh, all these uh, all these uh, action tabs uh, as I just named them and and make sure that everything looks sort of consistent and coherent somehow and that we distribute the the, the right number and the right um, quality of assets to all these people executing them uh, then sorry the their, their own plan have you seen any i mean has there been a huge shift in in the challenge for uh, like regular stores versus online is that something you've you've seen uh, in your work the recent years yeah definitely so uh, for a bit of background i come from the from the french market which is uh, one of the biggest in uh, in the tennis industry basically the the biggest markets worldwide would be uh, the United States, obviously. Uh, France and Germany then come uh, right after, um, uh, because historically they are just like really big uh, markets thanks to their federations. Um, so I was in touch a lot with the, 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 the French distribution and the retailers, and we had this shift uh, recently, or we saw, let's say, a trend into the, the, the online retail. Um, however, it, it, it's not necessarily a barrier for the for the, the brick and mortars. I think it's uh, more and more tools that they have to, to use and leverage. Uh, however, it's our role uh, as a brand to accompany them in this uh, development. And for sure, not all of them are specialists about uh, all this digital uh, evolution. So we just need to uh, understand with them what are their challenges. Uh, because yes, to answer your question, there are for sure challenges. However, it's not uh, it's not an end, and we need to we just need to accompany them and to explain them a bit how to work with the new tools that we develop also on our side, um, and yeah, how to use them basically to leverage and to surf on this wave rather than just uh, uh, sinking uh, under it. Yeah, because it's, uh, definitely a, a change, and you're not seeing. I mean, I must. You must be a more difficult time now for um, smaller tennis shops than it was before the the online kind of revolution of of, uh, of stuff. But obviously, it also opens more pathways for marketing thanks to social media and um, and digital marketing for sure. Uh, so, what did you do before you? Uh, how long have you been at Head, and what did you do before you started there? So um, I started uh, at Head in 2013 uh, as an intern in uh, in the French unit. And before that, when I was doing my studies and during the during the studies, I was working for a department store. So in France, the big uh, brand is Decathlon. Uh, it's known uh, worldwide uh, now because they are developing a lot. 
I worked for them uh, almost three years, not only in the in the tennis department, but also in uh, in other departments such as uh, football, uh, basketball, or let's say uh, team sports, and also bicycles. Um, it helped me a lot understanding the challenges of the markets, uh, because basically in these department stores, what you see is um, obviously not uh, a specialized uh, advising. And I've heard a lot of um, weird speech left and right uh, from the people in these stores because um, they weren't specialists in what they were doing, basically. So it helped me learn and understand that um, it creates even more confusion for the end consumer when you don't have the right amount of information available to you. And if, if it's beginning with the, the, the advisor or the seller that is in front of you, then it's, uh, it's not the right first step. Um, from that onwards, I understood that I wanted to work for a specific brand and not necessarily in, uh, in stores. And uh, during my, um, my studies, I, de I then decided to, to, to shift a bit and I approached all the tennis brands in 2013 in order to do a, a gap year for one of them. Uh, Head was uh, keen enough to answer me, actually. It was, uh, in full transparency, the only brand that answered my, uh, my demand at the time being. And uh, I was hired, luckily, and I, I, I did one year internship there. I was covering various areas for the, for the subsidiary, including uh, media plan, uh, doing the, um, helping in the, in, in the communication plan. I was also, uh, luckily, part of the National Pro Player Endorsement Program, because at the time being, the one who was responsible for that has to, to, had to leave sorry, the, the company. So I was 21 years old with my first professional experience almost, and I was in charge of all the national players, which was like super great time. I was also helping uh, to develop the, the program for the coaches, delivering them the products and their endorsement contract. I was also helping for the clubs, uh, covering their orders and delivering the balls and uh, the endorsement kit for them. And I did that for one year and then they basically hired me after that. So uh, I worked for friends for the next um, four to five years. And then recently, so in 2018, I was called by the headquarters in order to take um, this part of the job a bit more internationally. Uh, keep on focusing on communication part and basically instead of supporting one national market I need to support all of them right now so this is um, exactly the same tasks just a bit with a wider scope oh, that's an interesting uh, story I, actually the Cathlon they open even in Malta Malta is a very small place yeah. so I was surprised that they even tried to open a store here but it's been quite successful as I understand mm -hmm. This is this is a big company, one of the biggest in France. They they belong to the top 40, uh, and this is very active. They just their mission is very different from the the top end brand in each uh, in each department. The Catalan mission is just to make sport accessible to everybody. So that's why you don't have the same amount of advice as you could get in a specialist store, basically. They reach for the volume and not for the for the qualitative approach. No, of course, that's uh, that's the thing uh, that it's it's quite. Um, I mean, they sell everything from from bikes to to tennis mm. rackets and and the clothes and what what not. So it's a completely different um, exactly. path for sure. But your tennis background, did you play as a junior or did you come into the sport uh, as a part of head? <laughs> so that that's a good question. I'm, I'm I'm a huge tennis enthusiast and overall, I would say I'm a sport enthusiast. I follow everything. Right now, I have time to look at uh, 
all the content available. So, for instance, lately I even looked uh, at the Formula One uh, uh, reportage on Netflix. It was quite interesting. But for the tennis background, I started uh, very young because everybody in my family was playing tennis. We all play at a very bad level. I clearly belong to the bottom of the pyramid, but I love this sport so much that I keep on playing it, even though my level is not that good. But I'm definitely not a junior. I'm, I'm a club player. And what I like in this sport is um, is this this club life uh, part of it. Just going on the weekend on, on a space where I can talk tennis with a lot of fellas um, around more uh, barbecue style than a court style. Even though like I, I really like focusing on performance and when I go on court and I step on the court, I want to give 100, even 120% of myself out there. Um, but I also fancy the, the, the chill part and I'm more this kind of uh, beer and barbecue guy when it comes to tennis rather than just competition focus. That's nice, but you have a quite uh, vibrant uh, club life in France, right? That's a very, uh, I mean, that's a, one of the strongest sports in France. It is, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's the second or the third uh, federal sport. So in terms of um, official members, below obviously football, Football has like the, the double number uh, figures than, than tennis. But then you have also horse riding that is pretty strong in France, uh, surprisingly. And I think tennis comes third uh, with approximately one million uh, people playing it officially, so registered into clubs. And yeah, this is this is super strong. And that's, that's what I appreciated uh, as part of my youth. Uh, it's basically that I spent a lot of, of time uh, at the club. Uh, in France, you don't go to the clubs only to, to play tennis, but then you stay, you discuss, you drink, you, you eat, you, you laugh. Um, I even, for instance, remember in 1998, when we, when we won the World Cup, I remember watching the final in my tennis club. So this is a pretty big thing, you know, rather than being in a, in a pub or, or just in a, in a public area, you go back to the tennis club and you watch it with your with your tennis friends, because then it becomes like some sort of a, of a small family and the association side makes you commit a lot into the, the local uh, life, basically. That sounds really nice. It sounds like the way it should be, because I've, I'm in Sweden, it's not really like that. It's more like you get go there and then you play tennis and then you, you know, take a shower maybe and, and then leave. It's not that kind of social hub uh, where you meet other people and you hang around, which I think is, is the best way for sports to be a part of society if you can actually create more of a social atmosphere and and, and expand it beyond the actual uh, sport. Yeah, this is this is what I'm discovering now that I uh, I travel a bit more uh, thanks to my uh, to my new position at head. In, in, in Germany, I subscribe to a club immediately because, again, I, I really like this part of the sport and in germany it's basically the same well you must know that this is a country where they appreciate the beer uh, rightfully so it's it's the same in the club you have a small pub and you have uh, they, they also do like a restoration and and people go there but not only to play tennis they stay they discuss and this this is what i love i i really prefer where you go to the club like as part of um, your social hub, as you just described, I think you used basically the right terms. And this is this is what I love, why I love tennis, uh, one big part of it, actually. I've been last year to Japan uh, and I was totally discovering uh, the, the Japanese market. For instance, in Japan, they copied a bit what, what's happening in, uh, in the US. So they focus a lot about uh, schools. 
And what's, what's happening in Japan is that you belong to a team connected to your school or even your university. And, and, and you play like as part of this side of a team, right? Whereas in Europe, uh, it's more uh, the, the team spirit, you have it in, in a club, in an association or even in a private structure. And then you play for this external entity. Uh, in Japan, you play for, for your school. So I think the involvement and the implication are by far different. And the structures were uh, seemed to be a lot bigger. Actually, I was visiting only the big cities, Tokyo and Osaka. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I didn't see like the, the real part of, uh, of Japan. But I was, I was really impressed by the, the size of the infrastructures there. It was really, really big. A lot of people, we went there for um, a gravity event to launch the rocket uh, with a lot of teaching pros and so on. And yeah, it's, it, it, it seemed to be very, very different from uh, what I experienced in, uh, in Europe from all this side. But every structure is, uh, is specific. This is what I'm discovering now and what I'm challenging because when you have to touch base with a lot of different uh, markets, first of all, you have the cultural uh, distance. Uh, the, 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 the people don't behave the same in, uh, in various countries. Uh, Japan is a very good example then because, first of all, you have the language barrier. You need to translate everything because they have uh, a different alphabet. They don't uh, communicate the same way, so they have to adapt all the tools uh, locally. For instance, to explain uh, technologies and when they want to focus um, on, on certain aspects of the of the rackets, they, they they even transform our content into cartoon, so what they call the the the, the manga in uh, in Japanese. And, oh, wow. and when I saw that the first time, I was a lot surprised uh, surprised sorry to 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 see that it was uh, that they could use this kind of support as communication based. And eventually, they just prove us that this is the right thing to do for the market. And when you understand this kind of distances. You just uh, start acknowledging that uh, yeah, the, you need to open your mind basically and they, they help you uh, maybe thinking out of the box sometime just by looking at what they are doing in their execution. Um, yeah, I, I think you know also on your side maybe different cultural distances that you might have experienced between, for instance, Sweden and Malta. I'm sure you can already find some of them. Yeah, that's the interesting part. I mean, you're you're playing a sport that's uh, a global sport that people play all over the world, and then you're you're seeing a different take on the sport in every kind of country you visit. I mean, if I travel around, I, I see a, you know a more vibrant clubs, for example, in in the Netherlands and the sport there. Then, I mean, in Sweden, the sport was huge in the 80s when we had Edberg and uh, all those guys playing in the top 10, and the sport just grew, and then it had a quite a big downturn. Uh, after those players kind of retired and uh, we, we didn't have any top players in the rankings. So you see that the life cycle of the sport and the culture uh, depends a lot on the different market and where the market is in the in the life cycle of the sport, if it's really doing well. I mean, I guess in Japan, they've had Nishikori and Osaka. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, their sport should be very popular there right now. I'm not, I haven't been, so I don't know, but... No, no, definitely. And Nishikori is such an icon. He is, uh, he is the equivalent of a local Roger Federer, honestly. He is, uh, he is lifting the sport so much. So even though he's uh, playing for a competitor racket, they still think that Nishikori is helping overall the, the industry and not only one brand. Is uh, is such a leverage for the sport. And now, as you said, they have uh, Naomi Osaka also 
big big uh, thing for them and and of course of course it helped uh, the sport growing a lot and they saw they saw this trend and even uh, had japan benefit from this sort of situations and uh, when it comes to japan i have more, one more question that i've always wondered they they usually sell rackets in a lighter weight have you done that for head as well do you have different like japanese models for head they have, have they have specific models yeah exclusive to their market so this is what we call uh, an smu a single merchants unit and um so they they do um lighter versions indeed uh, in, in most of the case, I, I'm not really uh, into the specifics because um, this is very this is something they did only with the product team. However, what I saw, for instance, is that they, they prepared a specific model of the Radical S for the Japan market that they painted in uh, in pink and they called it the they called it sorry the Radical Sakura uh, because Sakura is like the the, the cherry blossom flower in um in um in japan so during yeah. the the cherry flower season they release a, a pink racket with a focus on the on the the, the 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 woman as a target audience obviously and they develop like one specific model for that with a um, a campaign related to it so that's that's funny when you acknowledge this and and they are the only one doing this kind of uh, of actions worldwide yeah, that's very interesting. Are, are there any other markets that are uh, very specific on kind of the models they they are selling more of? Or I mean, are you seeing trends that uh, certain rackets sell better in the US than they do in, in certain parts of Europe? Uh, definitely, definitely. I would say in the US, they prefer the higher uh, weight in the rackets. So the, the, the star models are more the Pro and the MP. And now we see sort of a breakthrough with our tour positioning, which is somehow in between the Pro and the MP model. Um, but they like the, the, the higher uh, weight. In France, for instance, we prefer a bit uh, lighter. So let's say the, the star model are more between MP and S. So you lower a bit the, 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 the average in terms of, uh, of weight of the frame. And that, that would be the only specific I know then for sure every market is, uh, is individual. And basically how they work is that we have an international range. So we have an international catalog, okay, that is uh, distributed everywhere. Uh, however, each unit has to pick within this international catalog and ma make their own uh, national offer. So it means that you might see different rackets uh, depending on where you are located uh, uh, on the world. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I my, my take on that um, is that Perhaps on hard courts, a higher weight uh, would make more sense. And on when you're playing on clay, when you need to hit more strokes and with more spin, a lower weight. Because you have a lot of clay courts in France, right? So, uh, and uh, that would be my just guess based on on you know w what it is. But I might be wrong. Right. It's it's really um, you know every every individual is different. So everybody will have a different. Uh, need and and i have i have instance every time i advise somebody about a frame even though for instance sometimes they don't um like playing with a lightweight because they think it's for beginners so they they, they would stick to a, a a pro model for instance with 315 grams when they should be playing lower uh, they just appreciate the the stability or the higher stability of a, a heavyweight racket but i, I i've seen so many uh, I wouldn't call it wrong things because in the end it's your own choice, right? We, we, who are we to, to judge any, uh, a personal choice? 
but one thing that come to my mind, I remember I was in, a, in, in Bercy in the stringing service and all of a sudden we see a kid who is visiting the player's area and the, the, the kid has a sling on his, uh, on his right uh, arm. He's uh, 14 or 15 years old. He's coming to the stringing service and the father is asking like, okay, my, my son just uh, got a tennis elbow. Uh, what would be your recommendation for him? So we try to understand. We ask him, okay, what is he currently playing? And he's telling us that the kid is 14 years old and he's playing a 315 grams racket with a monofilament with a pretty high tension. And this is something that, you know, we, we were stupefied with the, with the stringers because we're like, okay, this is, the, don't, look, don't look elsewhere. The problem is there. Because um, it, maybe you, you didn't have a transition between like uh, lightweight. So maybe you, you stepped like from 280 straight to, to 315 where you should have like, a bit of progressive, you know, change or switch. Maybe he didn't he didn't step to a, an hybrid um, string setup before he switched like from multifilament to monofilament, all these kind of things. And then for sure it's uh, it's harmful for the for the for the body and for the arms. So then then this kid ended up with uh, with physical issues. It's it's a pity, and I think this is what's really important in our job in communications. This educational part we need to. We need to give our best in order to educate the people on our portfolio and how to understand how our structure is made within the head range. So we make sure that this um, uh, tennis player out there end up with the with the right racket, racket between their hands, their hands, because it's uh, it's what matters in the end. People do bad choices on their own sometimes, uh, but also sometimes they receive bad advice or they look for the the, the information online and now that everybody is able to make their own comments sometimes you listen you you listen to things that shouldn't be uh, addressed to you you know eventually so i i think it's our role as part of uh, of the tennis industry and as a, a tennis brand to make sure that we ourselves when we uh, diffuse some sort of information it should be the right one and never being uh, granted or whatever so this is where we have to be tricky because even on our end, we cannot claim that this is the right choice for somebody because, again, there is like individual needs and it's, it's tough to find the, 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 the fine line actually in between the right um, recommendation and what is actually required by the player without being face to face and being able to, to uh, ask the right question in order to understand the need. Yeah, I think that's one of the key challenges in mm. tennis in general is that there is uh, a lot of misinformation and a lot of players think that they should play with uh, a similar setup to the pros uh, with mm. a heavy frame with a high tension because I mean the pros need a lot of control because they I mean they break strings on a almost daily basis and you have uh, you know club players that that have uh, you don't break strings within six months and it's a completely different player characteristics and you need to kind of make your choice. Of what you use depending on that so i completely agree that there's there's a lack of information and that's a kind of an educational challenge of what frame suits whom you know and it's a personal thing but still i i wouldn't you know recommend many teenagers to play with a poly at the high tension in a heavy racket it sounds sounds like a recipe for disaster really no definitely definitely but again this is something it, it, it's it's a challenge uh, as you said because um we don't, we don't have access to a one-to-one -one discussion. We wish we could because it would be ideal uh, to be in the position that you 
you you deal directly with the people and then you are able to actually yeah again understand the need and answer rightfully to it this is what we do sometimes and we it's also one of the, of our focus in uh in head uh basically what we call trade marketing so going into the clubs organizing sort of a clinic a demo day and and going like um, yeah one to few let's say in terms of uh, of audience and being able actually to put uh, different rackets in the hands of people so they can test and compare uh, themselves and then pick the right one for them um, again if, if if i have one advice to give to everybody is to give the time to try the racket or any anything you change the string also but you don't change a setup like from one day to another this is something you need to get used to it you need to practice a lot of hours because you have um, body and brain memory uh, that will um, sort of um, uh, affect the the, um, the feeling you get when you change from one racket to another so you need to be patient in the process and you need to take the time to make any change if you want to change the material at some point of your of your career path yeah, I completely agree about that. And I deal with a lot of players uh, through my consultations and, and just talking to, mm -hmm. to players from all levels. And it's uh, you, you really see this kind of same mistakes coming up uh, again. And it's, it's mainly due to a lack of kind of misinformation or, or uh, maybe like not giving a racket, like you say, a certain time or, or being a bit um, uh, not relying on, relying on the wrong information, etc. So um, that's, that's an interesting take. Uh, when it comes to your your current racket line, I mean, have you been tightly involved in the release of of some models? Uh, I mean, like the Gravity now, that's been a very interesting line of rackets. And and how do you see your your you know your current lineup of of rackets? I I, I follow it very closely because uh, I'm I'm part of the company for seven years now, so I see the evolution that we 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 did in the portfolio. But basically, I, I'm part of the the, the Graphene generation because it started in 2013 so um, I, I just saw the evolution I like um, I'm curious by nature so I like looking at areas even though I'm not involved into them and R&D is part of it uh, because I think like talking to the engineers uh, I, I could listen to them for hours honestly because it's it's so interesting to understand the the the, the process of developing a racket it's such a complex development uh, it's 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 crazy. Maybe maybe you would have the chance to uh, interview one of our uh, engineer later on. Uh, I, I wish yeah, I you could that. because it's very interesting actually. Yeah, I would love to to talk to one of those guys as well because it's I, I also find that very interesting and I think a lot of people don't understand like the how difficult or how much work is required into kind of creating a, a certain layup or a cer certain frame. Definitely, and yeah, so. Now we have in the portfolio six uh, major silos, basically. Uh, the, the Prestige, the Gravity, the Speed, um, Radical, Extreme and Instinct. And it, it seems a lot, you know, to, to the end consumer. And even, even ourselves, we are confused sometimes. However, it's necessary for us because um, with this um, individualization or uh, customization approach, everybody wants to have his own racket. And for that, you need to develop a portfolio that is wide enough to cover each individual needs. Uh, at head, we are um, benefit oriented. So rackets are sorted like from control to power ratio. Now we use what we call the CPI, so control power index on the rackets. So starting from uh, gravity, the gravity line, you see inside uh, the throat um, a number, a three digit number or four digit for the top line. 
Um, but basically, we put a number from 100 to 1,000 on the rackets that indicates uh, if the racket is more control or power oriented. And the number goes from 100 for control to 1,000 for like maximum power. So all these kind of small things that we are doing are now helping people not only to um, distinguish when they where they are in our portfolio in terms of silo, but also which model is positioned uh, into the, the the entire lineup in terms of control power ratio actually, uh, because then it varies within one silo. A silo uh, like for for instance Prestige stands for uh, control and precision. However, within the range you have rackets that are more powerful than the others. For instance, the latest add-on was the the, um, the Prestige 2 with a bigger a bigger head size, 640 uh, square centimeters, and and for sure this one is more powerful than the Prestige Mid or this uh, historical 600 600 uh, square centimeters. Um, all these kind of things uh, needs to be considered on our end in communications. And to to answer your questions. Um, now I'm curious about all these developments, and it's it's also part of my role to understand what are the the, the latest add-ons, uh, what are the, the the developments, and I'm also uh, part of testing sometimes. So everybody in the company is more or less a tennis player with different level, and basically we when we run tests, we don't do it exclusively internally because otherwise it would be uh, biased. But um, we we of course try it internally also. And it means that we we need to try uh, at the pre-development stage. So prototype only black racket without cosmetic. We try different layups, and then we give our feedback to the to the development team. And then of course when they have like um, when they are more deeper in the process, and when when you go in the development of the 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 the, the silo or the new frame you 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 picked up, then you you start like um, testing various layups, and this is where it gets super complicated for me to feel the difference because then you try layups about uh, just different string patterns, different uh, weights between two frames, and it becomes super difficult to judge uh, blindly about the, 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 the feeling and the feedback you could, uh, you could give to this racket. However, this is very interesting once again, and I'm, I, I feel lucky and glad to be part of, uh, of this because um, I feel like a, like, a, like a child in Christmas each time they they come back with a new pre-development, a new, a new black racket or prototype to be tested. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, so how long does it take usually? I mean, you get prototypes kind of all the time and then from, from prototyping stage to, you know, getting out to the market where you actually sell the model, it must be a quite a long time. It's, it's, it's a long time and then it, it depends if you do um, just an update on the racket. Or if you develop a, a new mold, obviously each year we have to uh, look at our investment and decide uh, that we want to help uh, one silo developing a bit more than the other, because then we have uh, we we need to brief the the, the R&D team, and they, they they cannot work on like uh, ten projects in the meantime. So if if it comes to a, an update on a current existing silo, then the time frame and the time range is way shorter. But if you want to develop something uh, from scratch, like what we did in 2017 with uh, MXG, for instance, this is overall a project of five years, I would say. Uh, if, if it's just an update on the frame, then you can shorten it to 18 months to two years, basically. Wow, it's a long time. 
when it comes to the MSG, I mean, w what were your learnings there? Because it's, um, I mean, it's not a line anymore, I guess. But uh, did you learn anything from the process, or? It's 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 still distributed now. It's uh, it it became selective. It was challenging for us to be uh, to be honest with you. However, we we gave our guts to this uh, to this silo. Uh, MXG was a, a strong development. We tried something. Uh, however, it seems the, the the feedback we get from this it seems that when the technology is this obvious on a frame, like with this specific bridge, it creates a sort of uh, reticence at any level. Mm -hmm. uh, on the on the Pro Tool, when we introduce this silo, it's something you catch immediately. You know, oh, there is a different bridge, and the immediate feedback on this was like it doesn't look conventional and it creates immediately some distance from the end consumer to this racket. You know, in the tennis market, people are a lot reticent with like changes or bigger changes. However, yeah. we, are, we are always challenged to find the next big update. Um, it's, 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 it's really tough in between. And we, we tried something with the MXG. Honestly, it was a, a success for us because even if somebody could consider it as a failure because we, we, we didn't drop the silo, but it, it's not on the catalog anymore. But but we learned from it. We learned a lot, a lot because, um, yeah, we we had some takedowns and we had to adapt. So it helped us for the for the future development. Basically, we we, we still use it as an instance uh, in most of the case because it, uh, it it helps us like growing and understanding our consumer once again. So. I think in the challenges like this, you became bigger as a brand. Yeah, I completely agree, and that—that's what I was—I was, I was uh, interested. I mean, because I—I I, I guess it's sometimes when you have these, like you say, very obvious um, features of the racket, that's not maybe something that people are used to. Because I mean, as you say, tennis players are usually very um, stay in tradition. They're very traditional, and they—they they like kind of old school stuff. A lot of them, and and uh, not many players are keen to try new things. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you have guys like, I mean, I guess Goran Ivanisevic is using this frame now. So mm -hmm. there, there are players that really love this frame. I also know a few guys that actually um, committed to the MXG. So it's it's always, I guess, tough for a company like yours to to innovate in an industry that's not very open to innovation. And and, and that's why we didn't we didn't stop it because then you would create the frustration to the people you actually managed to convince. It's just that uh, I would say, and I don't speak in the name of Head for this, but I would say I, I would understand that it, it didn't reach like uh, a big volume enough to be part of one of our silo. Uh, it, it was it was a niche of people that needed this kind of uh, of products, and and then we helped them a lot. Um, uh, as you said, maybe some pros are, are keeping using it, but we know that some um, club level players are also using them because uh, the the models that were quite su successful in the MXG range were surprisingly the, the oversized one, MXG5 and MXG7. And these ones are still pretty successful, actually. MXG5 was like a, a really good compromise because then you have sort of a stiff racket that is oversized with uh, extra length on the main strings. So you get actually a very easy power out of it. And for, for the short swing players, it's... It's it's just ace. It's spot on. When they try it, they're like, "Whoa, I love it!" Because it's super easy to play. Yeah, I can imagine that. I, I mean, I, I rem I've seen a lot. Um, I, I don't know what what's it called, but it, there's an old model. I think you're still se selling it. It's that 
TI is like Titanium mm-hmm. 6, S6, mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, ultra popular among veteran doubles players. You see it like everywhere you go, mm-hmm. you see this racket, you know, and I think this one has shares some similarities to that frame where you get that mm-hmm. very, very easy for power uh, and it's, it's stable enough to handle volleys for doubles players. So there's a, there's kind of a racket for, you know, every player or whatever, you know, you would say. So there's always someone that's going to like this racket more than, uh, than the others. Yeah. And on the other hand, uh, if you look lately, the, the, the gravity at the opposite was pretty much a strong success immediately. And we were sort of surprised by the result because now if you look, um, so after the, the, the first year we sold it, we sold it and it's not even one full year, it was six months. Now we saw that it belongs to the top uh, selling silos within our range. So it goes in, in, in the group, the, the leader group, uh, in terms of volumes with, uh, with the speed and the radical after six months in the market. And, and when you see this, you try also to understand what contributed to the success. And I think what contributed to the success of Gravity is that this is something that really sticks to our DNA uh, as head. Flexible racket with a lot of feeling, a lot of responses, and also the mix of this part of our DNA and something that fits to the new generation of player with um, uh, a sweet spot that is shifted upwards. It, it, it proved us that for this development, we managed to understand what was the consumer needs, which is, which is uh, uh, helping a lot for us. And, and obviously we are happy about uh, how it's going so far for the, for the gravity because we managed to convince a lot of players that this is uh, a good addition to our setup. And, and, and I think it's, it's good to point this out also uh, sometimes. And it seems that extended to the, to the Gravity line, it seems that the, the Graphene 360 Plus uh, extension to the Graphene technology uh, was also sort of spot on because, again, I think this is something that uh, stick to, our, to what we want to, to, to get out to the people as part of the brand image of head, what it represents to the, to the, to the end consumers. Yeah, I thought that the Graphene Plus is the best Graphene racket so far. And I really, I mean, as you know, I'm a huge fan of the Gravity line and also the new Prestigious and Speed <laughs> rackets. So uh, I've really seen a, a big progression in that kind of line of, of, of Graphene frames. When you introduced Graphene, has it been like a, a journey? I mean, I know a lot of like... Uh, racket uh, crazy people they they are not super happy about graphene until now i would say um has it been a, a, a tough journey or has it it's been selling really well but it's just been the more old school people that have you know really not loving the the more stiffer feel of the older graphene frames i would i would agree with uh, with your analysis i think uh, i think it could be interpreted like this we don't have clear researches that proves us uh, it, it went one way or the other but basically it proves that to understand a material as complex as the graphene it can take several years and of course when we introduced the graphene we were still in the experimental phase of it so when we when you discuss with the r d guys they the, obviously they have a work they don't work like once on the graphene then it's released and they drop the topic they constantly look at improving how we could feature the material into our rackets so we started with the graphene in the middle of the frame for like mass distribution. Then we shifted it uh, um, a bit to the extreme with the graphene XT. So we extended this distribution uh, to the top and the very end of the racket. 
and then you keep you keep improving this material to make it better and better and better an analogy would be like uh, when you when you grow wine you you don't it, it's not uh, only about like planting new grapes and then from the first year you will have the finest wine ever no the, the the roots have to work into the ground and they have to grow themselves and to gain experience in order to make better grapes every year this is exactly the same when we work with a new material and the the the, the length and the duration we it takes to us to understand a new material and to implement it into the supply chain this is basically what you are right now this is the analysis and i was happy as part of head to see the development of the graphene rackets because it, it it doesn't stop getting better and better and now it seems that we really understood how to take the maximum benefit of this material so i'm pretty sure we're going to keep using the graphene because this is this is a really strong material you don't have a better ratio between uh lightweight and and, and resistance in the in the market right now in the carbon market and now with some process so for instance graphene 360 plus still uses carbon the, the the spiral fibers are carbon made so it's not like a new material progress but it's just like a matter of construction so the layers of carbon as far as i understood are um, overlaid in a way that shapes like a spiral so when actually the racket bends it accompany the, the the flexibility of it in order to get more response and more feedback from the hoop of the racket so this is what creates in the end this uh, ball pocket feeling when you hit the racket when you hit the ball sorry and this longer contact and time that you have with the ball so in the end you feel that you have indeed more control and more a better feeling uh, with the with the ball to, to to understand that you have to you have to run a lot of, of tests a lot of analysis you need to run them through machines to analyze to analyze sorry a lot of data a lot of numbers and and find the fine tuning between that and this this doesn't take like one month you have to to analyze it for for months for years and 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 to keep improving and to answer your part about the graphene it has been a success immediately we saw it in our in our numbers so we we don't know what's the correlation if it's with the with the material or also because our players were also performing and lifting up the brand during this time because in the in the early 2010s Djokovic was just like the hottest player on a, on the tour 2011 he was performing uh, a, a lot like winning streak about 40 matches or something like this of course it helps the brand leveraging you know its image worldwide because they're worldwide because they are carrying uh, our brand image or we don't know if it's uh, also product related but we think it's a combination of both and that we had the right uh, development and of course we will we will keep on doing better we believe otherwise we would stop our work our work uh, right now but this is not the case we will keep improving and we will keep finding fine tunings into the setup to make them better every year no i i I, uh, I agree with you i think it's it's uh you have to understand that to understand the material and to develop like a really solid product i mm -hmm. guess you need you need time that's always the case with any kind of industry really it's, it's you rarely find the first generation of a product to be the best i mean uh, there might be cases but not not always how involved are you when it comes to working with players and um, and kind of you know player shootings and marketing around the around players? Um, so it, it's not uh, my inner responsibility myself. We have uh, one member of the team that is actually doing the connection, and sh uh, she is the one responsible for social uh, networks, uh, social media, sorry. 
Um, basically, our relationships with the with the players are more about the uh, right of image. You know, when we use them on a support, they need to make sure that uh, we don't conflict with any of their other partnerships. This kind of things we have to pay attention at. Uh, we need to make sure on the photo shooting that um, they look at their advantage or, or that we don't like uh, spot a huge aureola of uh, of sweat in their in their jerseys. This kind of this kind of details. Um, for us, it's uh, it's also a big discussion on how we can help each other um, uh, improving our, our image, and um, and this is this is very interesting uh, as part of the business. And yeah, we are, I'm involved more in the in the process of uh, preparing all the shootings beforehand um, and and setting up the strategy or the objectives behind them. But I'm not I'm not on site uh, doing the pro player shooting. Um, we, we have a team dedicated to that. Um, however, I'm, I also do like some shootings, but more close to the to the ground players. For instance, last year we went to uh, the Ferrero Academy in Alicante, uh, in Spain, uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, and um, and we did a, a footwork drills uh, shooting with uh, ITF players there. And and this to me was. Uh, also a lot enjoyable because then you you talk about uh, other pro players that are not the one under the spotlight and I think they have also a very interesting uh, understanding of the sport and they live it totally differently. So when you go to this sort of academy then you see a bunch of kids uh, or teenagers about between 15 to 18 years old training uh, their ass off because they want to become the new world number one. And and that's that's also a part I appreciate rather than the stars and stripe or the the, the big names only. Of course, we all dream about uh, becoming uh, the next uh, Djokovic, the next Nadal, or the next uh, Federer. But I think behind it, behind uh, all the the top players, there is a a bunch of players, us, uh, the, the the intermediary players on the the secondary tour, and this is also something I uh, I fancy besides the, the, the pro players connection only. Yeah, I can understand that. And it's, it's uh, nice to see uh, how much work is required to become a, a pro player of any level and the work that these uh, kids and juniors have to put in. It's, um, it's quite, for a lot of people who haven't been involved in that, it, it can be quite, uh, quite a shock. Uh, one question I wanted to ask more about the rackets is uh, when you work on the design of the racket, of the different racket lines, um, how does how does that work? Uh, are you involved in that work? And and you know, do you do a lot of like customer research on what what kind of the colorways of the different frames? And because I guess for a, a lot of players, the the visual of a racket is as important as the, how it actually plays, which is which might not be the best way to conduct your tennis playing, but uh, it's it's still very interesting. Definitely, definitely. Um, so design is split in two uh, dimensions. You have the industrial design, which is more about the shape of the mold that you're going to use for the racket. And in this direction, we work a lot uh, inspiring by the car industry. It, it was the same for the racket. Now you see a bit more rounder lines because it just uh, looks more modern, right? As you saw in the car industry in the past years, they went from straight lines to more curved and more uh, dynamic lines. And we, we, we are doing the same and following the same path uh, into the industrial design of our rackets. So for this, we work a lot uh, testing on 3D printings and this kind of things. Um, however, 
sometimes you also need to step aside data. Data is very important and we do a lot of market researches. Uh, don't get me wrong because we it's a focus. We need to understand our end consumer. However, data has its own limits and sometimes you also need to rely on on gut feeling and and to trust your instinct, you know, sometimes. Um, and, and for design, it's a lot like this. Uh, I, mean, I mean, artwork, you know, cosmetic about the racket. Because we talk about colors and about uh, things that people will be very subjective about. Everybody has an opinion. I prefer red, I prefer green, I prefer blue. And you cannot, you cannot satisfy everybody. So in the end, you have to make a call. And for this call, you need overall to source if most of the people in the room are actually agreeing that this is the way to go onwards. For instance, with the flip design of gravity, there were big discussions. You asked me if I was involved into that. I don't have um, a big voice into this, uh, this, uh, this decision, obviously. Uh, this is something that uh, directors are there to, to make a, a final call, you know. Uh, but, but they ask everybody. They ask every opinion. And then uh, it's considered or it is not because you, you, you belong to the majority or not, basically. Uh, but they ask everybody. And we, we also, we don't do big researches, but we go in clubs. We ask, for instance, so for, the, for this flip design on gravity, we asked, uh, obviously, Sasha Zverev before him if he was, if he was uh, okay with this, uh, with this concept, because uh, uh, if he doesn't want to play a flip design, then the project is just uh, over. Then we went to the clubs. Uh, we asked uh, kids about uh, this design, if they asked it, if, if, they, if they liked it, sorry. Then we asked uh, older players, but we work more in, um, in focus groups. So we work in small groups and we have constructive uh, discussions about that. And this is how it works. But mainly the end decision is about like guts and instinct once again. And you need, you need to trust your product and to trust the design in order to market it afterwards. Yeah, because it's a huge investment uh, if it takes a few years and then you, I mean, the design is a part of the, of the whole um, sales process and, and the success of the product. And then the design is not appealing to the consumer. It, it can really hurt sales, I guess, and uh, for people Definitely. to even even try the racket. Definitely, but it's there is no generality. Everybody will have its own opinion about uh, about a new product. What, what really, you know, frustrates us sometimes is that it takes such a long time to develop a product. It takes such a long time to put a design on a racket. Today, you see a lot of people giving their opinion on social media because you can comment so easily, which I agree with. I'm the first one to give my opinion about the products I bought. And, and this, is, this is normal and we need to, we need to accept that. The, the one that are very frustrating as comments, you know, that you can see live is sometimes you, you develop the racket like 12 months ago. So the cosmetic is done. Uh, now you can start like thinking about how to actually market it and, and start producing it. And, and people just throw out there when you reveal the design that we copied somebody or that we, it, it already exists or that we did the same than somebody else. This is what really hurts us because of course we look at the competitors. Of, of course we look at each other and we, we, um, we, we do what we call benchmarks. So we just, uh, uh, try to understand what's what's their portfolio, what they stand for. But if we do that, it's because we don't want to replicate the same things as, as them. And this is where we got a lot frustrated when we released, for instance, the new Radical, and people are saying, oh, these colors have, have already been used or whatever. I know this is 1% of the people, 
Otherwise, this is the one you you remember in the end as part of the 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 not the development team but the team uh, at headquarters. And this is this is really frustrating for us because the the, the rackets has been thought like months ahead, and it's not because it's launched like three months after another one that we copied it. It's impossible for us because it's 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 done way before that. And this is one thing I would like some of the the tennis players out there to to understand basically or to take as a learning from the discussion we are having right now. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the the time it takes to develop products in general is, is you have to understand it's a long, long, long period of time and um, and a lot of work and investment and hours behind it. And uh, yeah, people true. should understand that, but I think in, in general, many don't. You've been also around tournaments a lot, I guess. Have mm-hmm. you been see, watching a lot of interesting live tennis? Yeah, uh, luckily I've been even on the on the backstage when I was working in France. We were covering some of the the big tournaments uh, as part of the uh, the endorsements. So when it's the case, basically us as brand, we often supply the the balls for tournaments. But sometimes we also cover the stringing service. Uh, that was the case for us in uh, several tournaments back in France. So I, I was lucky enough to be part of uh, the Rolex Paris Masters for uh, three years. Um, as part of the streaming service team. Then uh, we did also uh, the endorsement for the Montpellier tournament, uh, ATP 250, which was more like a, a close event and very interesting also to be part of. And, and luckily, I've, I've been also participating uh, or looking at some tennis in uh, Monte Carlo or in venues like uh, Roland Garros, which is a, a tournament that I honestly have to appreciate. Like when you are French, you... You you leave for this uh, for this clay tournament because it's just the one that you can see on uh, on public TV, and and um, yeah I've, I have been lucky enough to be part of these uh, tournaments a bit uh, on the backstage uh, and being able to see what's happening uh, on the on, on the background of it. Yeah, it's uh, watching tennis live is the best thing, and that's what we I think we all mm-hmm. miss uh, right now. Uh, what do you think yeah. of of um, the French Open move to September. Is that uh, you think that's going to happen? I, I don't know if it will happen or not. I think uh, the president of ATP gave his uh, sort of approval to this recently. Uh, I, I think uh, it's just my opinion, so I take off my uh, head cap for this uh, for what I'm saying right now. Uh, I have to agree with uh, with a lot of people that uh, when when they announced it, maybe it was not the way to announce it or not the time, you know, to announce it. However. They are, they are under big time pressure because they have uh, big budgets involved and, and they had to take a decision. So I think we need to understand. And right now, everybody is starting to acknowledge that this might have been the right uh, solution because they, we need these Grand Slams to happen. And I think they didn't do it to damage uh, any competitors or, or any other tournaments, but just because like we need to understand that the, the tour has to has to cover um, at least some of the tournaments of the years. And I'm pretty sure they will take the, the big priorities first. So it means Grand Slam will be looked first, and then they will look at Master 1000. And these are the ones that need to, to happen for them economically talking. Um, so th- either you agree or not with the decision that uh, the, the, the French Open did, uh, I think it was a decision they had to, they had to make. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, it required some guts, but in general, I, I think I can understand why you need to act quite fast and in your own interest in one way, because um, you don't know what's happening in the world and you, and you need a lot of time 
to prepare a tournament of this kind of uh, size. You know, that's why also Wimbledon decided to cancel so early because it's uh, the the amount of time needed to prepare such a tournament and for everything to be committed 100% with sponsors for the crowds for people traveling there, etc. It's it's a huge undertaking. So you need to um, you need to like kind of book your spot in the calendar when everything is moving really early. Uh, so that Definitely. was my opinion. Definitely, and Wimbledon had. Uh something that made their decision pretty easy. You cannot play on grass on certain part of the season. So no, exactly. for them, it was either happening uh, on, on, on the time they, they, they actually have, or, or it was not happening. So I think the decision was way easier for them. Uh, the, the, the next uh, head scratcher is for the US Open, I believe. Yeah, that's going to be a, it's a big, a tricky one, especially mm. considering the current situation. Do you have any any top memories from your your uh, life in tennis so far? Anything you'd like to share there? Now the the one thing that 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 comes to my mind. So let's uh, let's go to uh, to the the Rolex Paris Masters. That's that's one uh, memory that I have and that uh, I, I appreciate it. Uh, it was in 2017. Uh, so I'm in the stringing service. This is the second consecutive year I'm uh, I'm into it. And uh, we are in the middle of the tournament. Uh, one random thing that happened is that <coughs> Pablo Cuevas was playing on the court number two, uh, so one of the annexes, uh, and he brings uh, he brings us a racket during the match. Uh, so he's playing a, a very small frame um, with like the, the 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 pro cap, a dense uh, string pattern, 1820, and he's playing a combination of two very stiff strings. Uh, in an hybrid setup. So already when you have this kind of rackets arriving in an express uh, during a match, you know that the, the, the stringer will have like, uh, you know, a sad face uh, for a while because he has yeah. to, to give his gut for 10 minutes and try to string this racket uh, as fast as possible and basically like damage his fingers and, and that's something that hurts, you know, and takes a long time. So the, the stringer starts doing the racket and He's done with the mains, and when he's turning the racket, he's just acknowledging that there is a bridge on the just above the shoulder area. So the racket is like literally broken, and he's telling me, "Shit, I don't know if I if I should actually continue doing it, if I should stop, if I will damage it even further, or I, I don't know what to do." So he's asking me to to look for the supervisor and ask uh, ask something around because the, the the instructions they have as stringers is to to not like string a racket that is already broken. So I, I try to reach the supervisor. I go around the court too, and the supervisor seems to not be around there. So I don't have time to run around the the the, 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 the whole tournament venue because basically Cuevas is in the third set. So if you want to bring his racket, we, we have only a short time ahead of us. So I go to the court, I, I, I wait for the changeover, and I cannot talk to Cuevas straight away because it's, it's just forbidden. So I ask the, the referee, and I tell him that uh, the, the, the racket is breached and that the, the, the frame seems to be broken, so we have to do to take a decision if we keep on stringing or not. Cuevas is understanding, understanding what I'm saying. I'm conversing in French because the referee is Dumousois. And Cuevas is understanding because it's Latin. And he storms at me. He's, he's totally mad. And he's like, I don't, I don't give a damn fuck if the racket is broken. You, you do it. You bring it right now. Because he's down in, he's down in the third set. He's storming into his bag taking a random racket, pick it up, give it to me. And he's like, and you do this one also. <laughs> I look at the score and he's like down 4-3 in the third set. So there's there's no chance we do this new racket like 
uh, in enough time before the before the match end up. So I go back to the stringing service. I tell the the stringer, okay, you you have to finish the racket. And I also uh, give him give him the new one, you know. So that the stringer is totally devastated. He has to do like a new uh, a new strong racket uh, in a short amount of time. So he knows he has to work like for the next 15 minutes still on this tough racket to be strong. End of the story. Cuevas lost his match. He comes back to the stringing service afterwards. Uh, so it's the end of the tournament. He's just uh, picking up his reels. But we are face to face. It's late in the evening. Uh, there is nobody in the stringing room because the stringer is gone for like a, a visual code. But anyway, I'm face to face with Cuevas and Cuevas is apologizing. So he's actually acknowledging that he, he, he reacted a bit harsh, you know, on me during the match, which I didn't care because he was in his match. So uh, he, can do, he can do anything basically during this time. And he is apologizing to me. And he's like, uh, sorry, I shouldn't have behaved like this. I'm very sorry. But, you know, it was the tense of the match. Uh, anyway, it's beginning of November. And Cuevas is like ending up his sentence saying, and uh, Happy New Year. And then he left the room. That was, <laughs> that, that was a funny story. Yeah, it's a funny story. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, being in the stringing service um, during uh, uh, such a large tournament like the Paris Masters, it's, it's got to be very stressful. And uh, you're going to get a lot of weird and interesting requests and dealing with player tensions and so on. Definitely, definitely. I love these kind of anecdotes from the from the tour, from around what's happening. Are, are you a stringer yourself or it's more you were dealing with the, with the services? Um, I, I am stringing myself. I'm not at a professional level at all. Um, I learned uh, at 13 years old of age um, uh, how to string a racket. And now if I have time, I keep on stringing my own racket. Um, but but honestly, we have we have a service that does that and covers that in uh, in headquarters. So we are we are we are glad to rely on people uh, that are actually willing to do that for a very uh, small amount of money. Oh, that's great. And uh, yeah, what rack do you do you use and strings? So currently, I'm, I was happy with, with the Gravity Line because they they came up with an oversized racket. So I use the Gravity S. Uh, with uh, an hybrid of uh, experimental and uh, links tool, sorry, and hook uh, in uh, in crosses. Ah, oh, that's nice. No, it's a nice frame. I'm I'm testing it right now, so I'm enjoying that. Okay. And uh, the Gravity Line is is uh, one of the best new releases I think in a long time. Uh, so I'm very happy with that that line of rackets. And uh, is there anything else you want to add, Antoine, before we um, move on with the, with Easter? It's an, it's a weird Easter day today. It's no celebration going on, really. It is definitely no, no. I think uh, I think we have to be patient with the current situation. It's it, it requires a lot of effort from uh, every individuals, and I, I just hope that we're gonna we're gonna come out stronger out of this situation, all of us, uh, all together. And I, I I really hope that. It won't damage our, our industry, the tennis industry, because this is really why I'm, I'm doing this job. I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about this sport, as you are yourself, Jonas. And, and we just want to, as you said, like keep on watching tennis, keep on playing tennis, uh, uh, first and foremost. And I, I'm just looking forward to go back on courts and hit some balls myself, because I, I miss it really much already. Yeah, same here. Same here. Let's uh, let's hope and cross our fingers that we're gonna go back to normal. It was uh, very nice talking to you, and uh, we'll Thank keep you. in touch. Thanks for the time, Jonas. Have a good Take day. Take care. Stay safe. Bye. Bye bye.